This is a crowd podcast. This is Death of a Sports Star. Andres Escobar was always in the right place at the right time. That's what they used to say about him. Old coaches, old teammates, old rivals. Andres wasn't fast or flamboyant or intimidating. He wouldn't want to hurt you. But he was always in the right place at the right time. That was his thing. And his country needs him to be in the right place right now. It's Colombia's second game of the 1994 World Cup. They've lost one already. They need to beat the USA. The US might be hosting the tournament, but they're not up to much. Colombia should win this easily, but there's 35 minutes gone, and it's still nil-nil. Colombia have missed chances, but what have we here? The USA are on the attack. At least they're having a crack, bless them. The ball is crossed into the Colombian penalty area. Andres looks to have it covered. He hesitates, speeds up, lunges with his right boot. He deflects the ball into his own net. Wrong place, wrong time to break a habit. Just after half time, the US score again. Some people fancied Colombia to win the tournament, but now they're done and dusted. Never mind, Andres, it's only a game, nothing serious. More important things in life, at least in a sane world. Here's the problem. Colombia in the 1990s is not sane. In fact, it's one of the maddest places on earth. It's murderous, destroyed by drugs. Not somewhere you'd want to return a hero, never mind a villain. A man who shattered dreams. That hesitation, that lunge, that deflection, that's what the story of Andres Escobar is about. How milliseconds, centimeters, and unconscious decisions can have far-reaching consequences. Because six days later, Andres is dead. Six bullets in his back, in a nightclub car park, in his hometown, of Medellin. Wrong place, wrong time, again. There aren't many right places in Medellin. You know what they called Andres Escobar? The gentleman of football. So you have to ask yourself, how does a gentleman go out like that? The captain of his country, assassinated. What does it say about football? Since when did own goals get punished by a death sentence? And what does it say about the cheapness of life when drugs take over a country and gangs rule the streets? Colombia's been at war with itself since the 1950s. You're forgiven for not knowing that. When something's been going on so long, People lose interest. 
The Colombian conflict is a bloody confusion, a mishmash of battles between the government, paramilitary and guerrilla groups from the far right and far left, plus multinational corporations, foreign states and drug traffickers. The details of the conflict are for another time. All you need to know is, by the early 80s, cocaine is Colombia's biggest export. It's bigger than coffee, which means the drug traffickers are now kings. The main man in Medellin is Pablo Escobar. No relation to Andres. Pablo's cartel has its own army. They have helicopters and fighter jets. When you've got that kind of money, you can pay politicians and the police to stay out of your business. If they don't play ball, you put a bullet in their head. It's brutally simple. Andres Escobar was born in Medellin, but not in one of the city's slums. Medellin has plenty of problems, but it's also an industrial city with a wealthy middle class. Andres's father is a banker and Andres gets an education, unlike thousands of other kids in the city. But football is the only thing Andres ever wants to do. He joins Medellin's Atletico Nacional in 1986, one of the biggest teams in the country. He's a central defender with class, solid but graceful, always in the right place at the right time. Andres makes his debut for Colombia in 1988. The year after, Atletico Nacional become the first Colombian team to win the Copa Libertadores, that's South America's Champions League. Andres scores the first penalty in a shootout. He's only 22, but the only man for the job. Nacional's win doesn't come from nowhere. Colombian football has been on the rise for a few years. Arch-rivals America de Cali finished runners-up three times in the mid-80s. Naturally, people want to know how. The how is drug money, which is why people don't ask too many questions. Nacional and Independiente Medellin are funded by Pablo Escobar. Pablo loves his football, no doubt about that. But it's more than a bit of fun for him. It's a way of laundering hundreds of millions of dollars of drug money. Pablo isn't the only one. A boss of the Cali cartel owns America de Cali. The drug money means teams can keep their best players and import foreign stars and coaches. It becomes known as narco soccer. If you're cynical, you might say football in Europe isn't much different today. But instead of drug cartels, club owners are in charge of crooked countries. Those dramas you've seen about drug lords, some of it's exaggerated, but some of the stuff that's actually true will blow your mind. Pablo has a football pitch on his ranch and he'll fly in teams for betting matches. He'll bet on the result against rival drug lords. After the game, players will climb back onto the plane, clutching bags full of money. 
After one game, Pablo has a referee murdered. He reckons the ref's decisions have cost his team the game. Pablo doesn't just have referees killed. He also chalks up politicians, judges, hundreds of police officers and thousands of rival cartel members. But despite all that slaughter, poor people love Pablo. Why? Because life's not simple. He builds football pitches in the slums where future internationals learn to play. He builds schools and health centres. When he hears about hundreds of families living on a rubbish dump, he builds them a village. To them, Pablo is a folk hero, like Robin Hood, sent to lift them out of poverty. They don't care he's bumping off politicians. What did politicians ever do for them? Pablo has operations in Medellin, Cali, in the capital, Bogota, in America. He deals with the Russian and Italian mafia. At its height, the Medellin cartel is raking in more than $70 million a day. The story goes, it spends $1,000 a week on rubber bands to wrap the bundles of cash. In 1989, Forbes magazine says Pablo is one of only 227 billionaires in the world. It's only when America gets tough on drugs in the late 80s that Pablo starts to feel some serious heat. But when rival drug lords start being extradited, Pablo goes on the attack. He has the justice minister and the presidential candidate killed. The cartel bombs buildings and planes out of the sky. Armoured vehicles battle the police and army on the streets. In 91, Pablo gives himself up in exchange for a reduced prison sentence and the promise he'll stop trafficking. Colombia's extradition deal with America is also scrapped. Funny that. As part of the deal, authorities build a prison for him, including a football pitch. One day, the national team turns up for a game, including Andres. He doesn't want to be there, but doesn't think he has much choice. Who does? But some players have known Pablo since they were kids. They feel grateful to him. Years later, Lionel Alvarez, a teammate of Andres, says he was criticised for being a drug lord, but we just felt lucky to be given football fields and not drugs. In 92, Pablo gets wind the authorities want to move him to a tougher prison. Naturally, he goes on the run. Now, it's Pablo versus everyone else. There's an unholy alliance. Members of rival cartels, members of his own cartel, right-wing paramilitaries, the police and Colombian and American special forces. One of the factions calls itself Los Pepes. People persecuted by Pablo Escobar. On the 2nd of December, 1993, Pablo is shot dead. 
Peace breaks out across the land. Old enemies break bread. They pass peace pipes, hug and dance in the streets. Sorry, no, none of that happens. Thousands turn up for Pablo's funeral. Most of them poor, most of them in tears. They think Pablo's death is one of the worst things that could have happened. Who's going to look after them now? Everywhere else, it's carnage. Pablo was the boss of bosses. Now he's out of the way and there's no one making the rules, controlling the underworld, holding other bad people to account. Every boss is doing what he wants. Locals called Medellin the city of eternal spring because of its mild climate. Now it's the city of eternal violence. Every week, hundreds of people are killed on the streets. The murder rate is five times higher than New York. The only city that runs it close for violence is Cali. As a whole, Colombia's murder rate is higher than any other country not at war. It's normal for children to walk past dead bodies on their way to school. That's the state of Colombia when Andres Escobar and his teammates set off for the 94 World Cup. The national team's nickname is Los Cafeteros, meaning the coffee growers. Now their country is famous for two things, cocaine and murder. Maybe they can make it famous for something else. Maybe they can make all their people proud. Poor, rich, left, right, and in the middle. Andres thinks so. He believes football has the power to change things. At least lift the gloom. The Omens are decent. They've only lost two of their 34 games. One of those was on penalties and they conceded just two goals in the World Cup qualifying. In their last qualifier, which was basically a playoff, they beat Argentina 5-0 in Buenos Aires. They got a standing ovation from the Argentinian fans. Impressive. Andres is captain of the best Colombian team there's ever been, the golden generation. The coach, Francisco Maturana, likes to let them express themselves. They're fearless, vibrant, exuberant, brimming with possibilities. One of Colombia's biggest newspapers sums up the mood. Colombia is living a collective feeling of belonging and nationalist ardor not seen since the war against Peru. In case you were wondering, that war finished in 1933. Brazilian legend Pelé reckons Colombia might win the tournament. He has a habit of saying that, depending who's asking the question. One day it's Italy, the next it's Brazil, the next it's Colombia. It's a media joke, but nobody thinks his Colombia tip is ridiculous. The guy running midfield with the mop of blonde hair, that's Carlos Valderrama, twice South American footballer of the year. He says his aim is to make Colombian fans dance. Up front, they've got Faustino Aspria, big in Italy for Parma. 
And at the back, there's Andres, who's on his way to European champions, AC Milan, after the World Cup. That's how good he is. The sensible one, the nice one. The guy who organises scholarships for poor kids, reads his Bible every day. The guy everyone loves and who's always in the right place at the right time. One man not in America is goalkeeper Rene Iguita. That's a shame because he's the guy who likes to dive head first and clear the ball off the line with his heels instead of just catching it. Crazy, but it puts smiles on people's faces. Iguita didn't exactly get dropped. He ended up behind bars. The charge? Mediating in the ransom negotiation of a kidnap. Only in Colombia. Other players got caught up in the mayhem before escaping to America. One player's son was kidnapped before being returned. Andres and his fiancée, Pamela, narrowly missed being blown up at a market. So behind the smiles and optimism, there's a lot of mental baggage. It doesn't help that the attention has gone to some players' heads. There's too much partying, not enough graft. On top of that, Valderrama isn't fully fit and Aspria is shattered after a long season in Europe and the team isn't as close as it seems. Rumour has it, the serious Valderrama and the laid-back Aspria don't get on too well. Andres admits it's difficult to stay focused. He says, We are all working for a common cause, to make our country proud. I find motivation in the good things to come. Colombia are expected to beat Romania in their first game. They don't. Romania soak up Colombia's early pressure and score on the counter. They go two up when Georgi Haji, Romania's one world-class player, lobs Colombia's keeper from the touchline. Come back, Rene Iguita. All is forgiven. It finishes 3-1. They're not doing much dancing back home. So, what next? We'll talk about it after this break. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 
Colombia's second game of the 94 World Cup is against the USA. It's in Pasadena in California. Colombia have played the USA eight times and won seven. But that's all just history. The present is a bloody nightmare. Death threats appear on TV screens in the Colombian players' hotel rooms. One player gets news his brother has died in a car crash. In Colombia, it's all riots and looting. Two hours before kickoff, coach Maturana turns up to a team meeting in tears. He's been told if he picks midfielder Gabriel Barabas Gomez, players' family members will be killed. The owners of Colombian clubs want certain players in the spotlight on the biggest stage to increase their value. Maturana threatens to quit and only agrees to stay after frantic talks with Colombian officials. But Barabas is out. None of this is good preparation for anything, let alone a World Cup game Colombia have to win. But no one outside the squad knows anything about it. When the world watches them walk out in front of 93,000 fans at the Rose Bowl, they think Valderrama, Aspria and the rest of the Colombian boys are all set to dazzle and start making up for lost time. Colombia settle well. They hit the post in the sixth minute. Halfway through the first half, the ball is cleared off the USA's line after a goalmouth scramble. Maybe if one of those chances had gone in, it would have turned out different. There are those milliseconds, centimetres and unconscious decisions again. Suddenly, nobody in the Colombian team can pass a ball, which is what they're known for. Valderrama looks like he's wearing diver's boots. Bodies sag, heads go down. It looks like they're not even trying. Is Aspria even on the field? The Americans start making inroads. 35 minutes on the clock. The USA's John Harks gets the ball in space. Has no idea what he's about to unleash. One team's heaven and another team's hell. He cuts inside, switches the ball to his left foot, crosses. Andres looks to have it covered. You know the rest by now. Andres lies on his back with his arms behind his head. The noise of the crowd is deafening. Americans seem to know what football is now. Andres gets up, looks nervously to his right, trudges back to the halfway line. He looks like any other defender who's just scored an own goal. Shell-shocked. Embarrassed. But friends and family watching think they see something else. Pain and fear. Now, Colombia completely fall apart. No precision, no movement, not much effort. That's what it looks like. 52 minutes in, the US score again. And it's all so easy. Ball over the top, defenders nowhere. Striker clips the ball over the goalkeeper. And that's pretty much that. Colombia gets a late goal, but there's no stirring finish. Nothing to get people out of their seats, let alone dancing. It's the USA's first World Cup win since 1950. 
Their journalists are talking about miracles. With the Colombians, it's more shame and betrayal. Two games, two defeats, probably out of the World Cup. So much for lifting the gloom. Coach Maturana doesn't mince his words. We stunk, he says. We have let everybody down. The Salt Lake Tribune says Andres Escobar is probably on a wanted poster back in Medellin. Colombian fans think death threats are just what happens in their sick country. Before Colombia's last game against Switzerland, coach Maturana's life is threatened again. There are rumours a new Medellin cartel will give the squad a special welcome home, and not with flowers. Colombia beat Switzerland, but still finished bottom of their group. They're the first team out of the World Cup. A Colombian radio station asks Andres if he wants to stick around and do some punditry. He could also visit family in Nevada. He decides he wants to get home to Medellin, to his fiancée. But before he goes, a journalist persuades Andres to write a column for Colombia's biggest newspaper. Here's what he said. Life doesn't end here. We have to go on. Life cannot end here. No matter how difficult, we must stand back up. We only have two options. Either allow anger to paralyze us and the violence continues, or we overcome and try our best to help others. It's our choice. Let us please maintain respect. My warmest regards to everyone. It's been a most amazing and rare experience. We'll see each other again soon, because life does not end here. Back in Medellin, friends and family rally round. Never mind, Andres. It's only a game. Nothing serious. More important things in life. And then Andres gets sloppy. On the 1st of July, he phones his teammate, Louis Herrera, and invites him out for a drink. His teammate advises him to stay home. Andres' response? I must show my face to my people. So off Andres goes. Maybe he thinks he can't possibly be in the wrong place at the wrong time twice in less than two weeks. Andres is out for most of the day. People are respectful. Hardly anyone mentions the own goal. At about 10 o'clock, Andres turns up at Padova Disco. Padova is smart, the sort of place that won't let you in wearing trainers. Andres meets three friends, has some food, a few drinks, and hits the dance floor. He seems in a good mood, smiling, happy to chat. But there's also talk of an altercation. Andres being insulted, needing to be calmed down. There are two women. How are they involved? It starts to get cloudy. At about 2am, Andres's three friends leave. Andres tells them he's sticking around. Andres finally leaves between 3 and 4am. He's seen talking to four men in the car park. 
Are they the same guys from inside? Whoever they are, apparently they insult him about the own goal. They also call him a crook and a faggot. Andres drives closer to reason with them and defend his honour. He tells them he's human and makes mistakes. According to witnesses, one of the men says, you don't know who you're messing with. Another one shouts, thanks for the own goal. With that, he produces a gun and shoots Andres six times in the back. In Medellin, it can happen as quick as that. The men drive off at speed. Andres is bundled into a taxi and driven to hospital. It takes 45 minutes to get there. He's dead on arrival. He's one of 40 people murdered in the city that night. So much for using football to project a different image of his country. So much for showing the world a different face. Colombia's even uglier, even madder than people thought. Where footballers get murdered for scoring own goals. John Harks, the American whose cross Andres deflected into his own net, says, I'll remember the goal differently now. That hesitation, that lunge, that deflection, all those little things affected so many lives. At Andres's funeral, 100,000 people walk past his casket. They start queuing Saturday night and continue all through Sunday. One man leans over the casket and cries. It's not your fault, Andres. It's not your fault. In his eulogy, the Colombian president says, Andres was a victim of the absurd violence affecting the country. It's a 10-mile procession to the cemetery. Fans throw flowers. Others chant, Justice. Justice. Some of Andres's teammates aren't there. They don't even feel safe at a funeral. Andres wasn't the only one who got sloppy that night. The license plate of the getaway car is quickly linked to two former members of the Medellin cartel. Brothers Pedro and Santiago Gajon. Almost as soon as he's arrested, Santiago's bodyguard confesses to the murder. Everyone knows bodyguards don't kill people without being told. But the Gajon brothers are acquitted. According to a former enforcer for Pablo Escobar, they paid off the public prosecutor. The bodyguard is sentenced to 43 years. In those early days after Andres's murder, it's pretty much accepted he was killed in revenge for gambling debts. Apparently, the Gajons lost a fortune on Colombia going out of the World Cup, but no evidence ever comes to light. And underworld figures insist football wasn't even mentioned. Andres, they say, simply had a drunken argument with the wrong people. In Colombia at that time, it could have been about anything. But that begs an awkward question. 
Would they have killed Andres if Pablo Escobar has still been alive? Pablo the football fanatic. Pablo the boss of bosses who made the rules every other bad man lived by. And would anyone have dared kill Andres had he returned to Colombia a hero? It seems unlikely. But maybe Andres's death isn't in vain. That's what his family and friends cling to. Maybe it's the beginning of a better Colombia. The state finally start to take the mayhem seriously, banging up drug lords, breaking up cartels, and drastically reducing the amount of cocaine being produced. Crime goes down with it. There were 577 murders in Medellin in 2017, compared to 7,223 in 1991. Not perfect, but it's now a lot less deadly than, say, New Orleans or Detroit. It's somewhere tourists visit for its museums, gardens and flower festivals. But the cleanup isn't great for football, not at first. Because drug money is no longer pouring into clubs, they can't afford to keep their best coaches and players or develop new ones. The national team goes 16 years without qualifying for the World Cup. But this last decade, they've been producing world-class players again. Radamel Falcao, James Rodriguez, guys who would have walked into that 94 team, guys who are making Colombia famous for football. But whatever the state of the Colombian team, they could always do with an elegant, intelligent player like Andres Escobar in the heart of defense. A guy who thinks football can be a force for good. A guy who cares deeply about his country. A guy who's always in the right place at the right time, even when he isn't. That was a story of Andres Escobar. It was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. Our editor was Tayo Papula. For research, we use Sports Illustrated, Bleacher Report, 442, The Irish Examiner, Colombian newspaper El Tiempo, various UK and US newspapers, as well as the ESPN documentary, The Two Escobars. It's worth watching. If you want another podcast to listen to, search for another Crowd Network original called Death of a Rockstar. There are episodes about Whitney Houston, George Michael, Freddie Mercury and more. My personal recommendation would be the episodes about Amy Winehouse and Otis Redding. Search for Death of a Rockstar and you'll find them all. There'll be a new episode of Death of a Sports Star out on Monday. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. 
New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Right on. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.